You're listening ad-free with Wondery Plus. Hello. Hello. There's this word in French that means scam, arnaque. A scammer or a con artist is sometimes called an arnaqueur. An original definition translates roughly as one who amuses in order to defraud. Ah, yes. It's a good way to think about scams, I find, or at least the most inspired ones. The problem, the bank saying me. I'm not talking about street-level swindles. I'm talking about the most elaborate confidence schemes, cons that are in thousands or millions of dollars, tens of millions even. Yes. Yes. That kind of scam is rarely a single event in time, like a theft or a robbery. No, a truly great con is a story. As you know, I'm sending you $45 million. It's a fairy tale, one that taps into the listener's greed or loneliness or vanity or charity. To run this kind of scam, you have to be more than just clever or persuasive. You have to invent a whole imaginary world and then put your mark inside it. Make them a part of it so that they're adopting a new persona, just as you are. That's the art part of being a con artist, an arnaqueur, to amuse in order to defraud. This is a story about a man who's done that more successfully, more outlandishly, than just about anyone who's ever lived. A con man whose whole life was organized around one simple idea. If you can make a story so enticing that the listener lives inside of it and doesn't want to leave, you don't even have to steal the money. They'll just give it to you. From Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music, I'm Evan Ratliff, and this is Persona. Season one, The French Deception. Episode 1, Madame G. There's a woman I've never met, or even spoken to, who I've been thinking about for almost 17 years. Back when I first learned about her, she was 45 years old and living in Paris. But for most of the time I've known her story, I didn't even know her real name. I know it now. I learned it years later. But still, I prefer to use the more elegant name given to her in the French press. They called her Madame G. Madame G worked as the director of a post office in Paris. The National Postal Service in France, La Poste, also operates as a bank. So think of her as the manager of a bank branch. On the afternoon of July 25th, 2005, she got a phone call from the head of La Poste, a man named Jean-Paul Belly. This was something of a surprise. Bailey was many layers above her. She'd met him in passing before, but he'd never called her directly, out of the blue. His tone was urgent. He told her that the government had evidence that terrorists were using an account at her branch to finance attacks across Europe. 
LaPoste was working with intelligence agencies to stop them. They needed her help. And so Madame G found herself plucked from her life as a mid-level manager at a post office slash bank and suddenly dropped into a top-secret anti-terrorism operation. An international secret service agent will call you, Bailey told her. I'm counting on you to give him all the information he needs. An hour later, her phone rang again. It was the agent. He provided only a first name, Paul. He said the mission they were about to embark on required the utmost secrecy. She could tell no one, not her colleagues, not her friends, not her immediate boss. She would be protected and rewarded for her work. At his insistence, she purchased a new mobile phone solely for their communications. Her own phone wasn't secure. He told her to keep it on 24 hours a day and expect to hear from him at all hours. She did, 42 times in three days. Paul seemed to know a lot about her, where she lived, the age of her mother, that she was gay and had a partner. At one point, he asked her if the date May 5th, 1993 meant anything to her. It was the day her father had died. A few calls in, Paul asked her to list off the names of the customers at her branch with the most money in their accounts. When she did, he said the list confirmed his suspicions. One matched up with the details he had for the terrorist account. With Madame G's help, he said, they would set a trap. And then he laid out the plan. First, she needed to withdraw cash from the bank's largest accounts. She took out 258,000 euros. It wasn't enough. Paul told her to go back and scrounge every bit of cash available in the bank that day. In a panic, she found another 100K. It would have to do. Next, he told her to pack the money in a bag. And then, at a designated time, she'd take the bag by taxi to a restaurant in Paris called Canon de la Nation. Paul told her to wear white so his agents could recognize her. When he gave the word, she would enter the restroom and wait. One of his agents would knock and say a password. Then Madame G would hand over the money. His agents would mark the bills and then return them to her at a second cafe across town, 15 minutes after she arrived. At times, over the days and the endless calls, Madame G said it was too much to ask of her. She was frightened. But Paul persisted. He was counting on her, he said. The French state was counting on her. So at 10 o'clock on a Thursday morning, she walked out of her La Poste branch, carrying the bag of money. A woman who cleaned the office later remembered seeing her that day, dressed in white. She rode in the cab to the first restaurant, gripping the bag, and maintaining phone contact with Paul every two minutes. Do you see my agents, he asked, according to one account. She said she couldn't. Good, he said. She arrived at the restaurant, entered, and walked to the bathroom, down a small hallway. She went into the stall, locked the door, and waited. Moments later, there was a knock on the stall door. Then a woman whispered the password, Brevet. Madame G cracked open the door and handed over the bag, without getting a glimpse of who took it. She waited until the woman had left, then walked out and traveled to the next cafe. She sat down and performed the signal Paul had given her, crossing her legs. This would alert an agent with green eyes who would return the bag of money. She waited. Five minutes went by, then 10. 15 came and went, still no agent, no money. At some point, she realized Paul had stopped calling. Time began to slow down. 
Sometimes I try to imagine the dread Madame G felt in those moments. The slow dawning of an excruciating realization that nothing was what it had seemed. It's almost physically painful to think about the idea of this new dramatic reality she'd been immersed in just crumbling away. microphone likes to be like this far from you. Is it okay if we move this a little bit? Comme vous voulez, comme faites comme chez vous. She says, do as you would in your house. Oh, thank you. Voilà. When Madame G finally realized that she'd been tricked out of 360,000 euros, she went straight to the police. She also called Sylvie Nowakovich, a defense lawyer based in the Paris suburbs. Au début, les services de police ne l'ont pas cru. Parce que, imaginez qu'une... At first, the police didn't believe that a person of her ranking who works in a bank would uh, hang around with 350,000 euros in cash in a, the toilets of a bar. That's our translator, Lila Badranath. This is a strange question, but through the door of the stall in the bathroom or through the door of the bathroom? Est-ce que vous savez si c'est à travers la porte de la salle de bain ou des toilettes en elle-même? Enfin, de la... Des toilettes. Des toilettes. Elle devait s'enfermer dans les toilettes et elle devait entrebâiller la porte et remettre la sacoche. Yeah, so it was in the stall. She believed she had been duped, she told the police. She didn't know by who. Paul? The head of the post? Terrace? What had been real? What was a mirage? All she really had was a story and a phone that wasn't ringing anymore. Au début, ils l'ont pensé complice. Mais comme je so at first they thought she was an accomplice, but then the lawyer called them. And also seeing her psychological state, they started to understand that she was innocent. But they were still acting like making fun, being like, how could she do that? Like, it was ridicule of her to do that. Finally, she walked them through the whole thing, hour by hour. It was brilliant, you had to admit. The man on the phone had earned her trust carefully, isolated her completely. They'd built an alternate world around her, given her a new identity as a secret agent with a new purpose. It seemed like they'd thought of everything. Noakovich soon discovered, for instance, how Paul had known so many details about Madame G's personal life. The accomplices managed to get intel about her private life by calling her 80-year-old mom and telling her that it was something for um, a TV show, like a TV game. Uh, and so they learned that she was gay, different like birth dates and stuff like that that were like really personal. And so when he contacted her, he was able to tell her this stuff and that made her trust him that he was an actual secret agent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. To get the cash, Madame G had actually withdrawn it from a customer's account at La Poste, forged their signature. Et l'employeur était furieux. So the, her employers were outraged, they were super cold with her because they were outraged that she could do such a thing. She was only able to supply the police with one phone number, the one Paul had given her. They connected that one to a burner phone in France and the burner phone to another number, this one in Israel. When the French police traced the Israeli number, they discovered it belonged to a man they'd encountered before. His name was Gilbert Shikli. Investigators believe this man, Gilbert Shikli, is behind the scam. Le chef présumé de ce groupe, hein, Gilbert Shikli. Oui, Gilbert Shikli. Opération Gilbert Shikli. Se porte rapidement sur Gilbert Shikli. Gilbert Shikli risque 10 ans de prison s'il rentre. Il s'appelle Gilbert Shikli. I first read about Madame G and Gilbert Shikli back in 2005 
in a short article in the French newspaper, Liberation. I still have a yellowed printout of the story. It always seemed like a fun little tale, a bit of criminal inspiration. But since then, I've done a lot of reporting on international organized crime, and I started to notice something. Over the years, the kind of scam that Gilbert Shickley pulled off began multiplying around the world. I realized that Shickley's original con was more than just a curiosity. It was a kind of Rosetta Stone, a way to understand how we ended up here. We're living in a golden age for scammers. You may have noticed it in the calls and emails you get almost daily. But the big money isn't in scamming you. It's in scamming institutions and companies, even governments. Look closely, and you see it everywhere. What's scary is this could really happen to any company. It's... In 2015, a California tech firm lost $47 million to it. The next year, a German cable manufacturer, $44 million. Where criminals steal money by asking for it. A Chinese-owned aerospace company gave away $61 million the same year to someone impersonating their CEO. When the big boss says jump, many employees ask how high. Three million, scammed from the U.S. toy company Mattel. Urgent request, please send me all the W-2 information of all employees. Just months ago, a French real estate firm lost $35 million. The company's accountant had been convinced he was part of a secret project to take the company public. He wasn't. And that's exactly why CEO fraud is so effective at fooling its victims. And always, the elements repeat. The impersonated corporate boss, the secret project, the urgent transfer. And afterward, the employee on the other end, slowly realizing none of it was real. Each year, billions of dollars are lost, simply handed over to strangers, like cash, passed through the bathroom stall door. I wondered what it takes to run these scams. Who's behind them? And what does it feel like to fall for them? The answers could be found in the story of the man who set it all in motion, with those 42 calls to Madame G. Reading the article, I had thought she was extraordinary, but it turned out she wasn't. She was just patient zero. After her, Shickley's scams became more elaborate, more lucrative, more brazen. Like he was holding up a mirror to the world and saying, look how easy you are to deceive, how vulnerable you're made by your privilege, your security your sense of importance. I could invade your world, pass myself off as one of you, and take what I want. It's so easy. Why wouldn't I? If you wanted to pick a moment the whole thing started... It was when Shickley met a man in Israel six months before Madame G got that first phone call. A man with a particular expertise in moving and hiding large amounts of money. His name was David Atiash. Atiash spoke to our producer Chris Knapp on the phone last summer. We all went through a lot in this story, Atiash said. It should be told without being sentimental. Atiash was one of the first people we called to try and understand Shikli. They'd been business partners back then, friends even, for a little while. Are you in contact with Shikli? Chris asked. Well, Gilbert Shikli, I don't talk to him anymore, he said. It's been years since I spoke to him, 
because it's too dangerous. When you're in contact with him, you end up in contact with thugs. Atiesh was reluctant to talk much on the phone about Jobert, or what they'd done together. Perhaps we could meet in person, he said. He wanted to vet us, make sure we would tell the whole story, not the one the French media usually did. In the meantime, we could read the book he wrote about his time with Shikli. It was titled La Deballe, The Script. It was a partially fictionalized account. Names and places and a few events were changed. But when I checked it later against police files, the key moments held up. The way he wrote it, he'd first met Gilbert Shikli at a nightclub in Netanya, a resort town just north of Tel Aviv. Shikli was handsome, handsome in that way where people mention it when they first tell you about him, like it's important. Trim, dark eyes, square features, perfect teeth. So perfect, Atiash thought they might be fake. He had the smile of a washing machine salesman. Shikli had just moved to Israel from France and needed help getting established. David's brother introduced him to Gilbert Shikli and he asked him to help him. Laura Barabi was Atiash's attorney and close friend. I'm a criminal lawyer, uh, 20 years. I love my job. Uh, <laughs> I think it's the best job in the world. You meet people in the bad part of their life mm-hmm. and sometimes you can find the light and after you became a part of their life. She says that back when Shikli arrived in Israel, he told Atiyah she sold advertising over the phone. That was a euphemism. It was a common scam. Shikli would call up businesses back in France and offer them special ad placement in publications and websites that didn't exist. And David knew it. But Atiyah wasn't a stranger to shady businesses himself. By night, he was a musician, a guitar player. But his day job, if you could call it that, was setting up offshore shell companies for wealthy clients. He'd meet with lawyers and bankers in a distant country, file the paperwork to open a company and associated bank accounts. The client could then use the company for whatever they wanted, dodging taxes, usually. He also spoke English, which allowed him to operate everywhere from Panama to Costa Rica to Delaware to the Seychelles. But his real specialty was Hong Kong. By his own account, Atiash created as many as 700 companies there. He describes in his book having entered, quote, the lush world of fiduciaries who very discreetly manage the most important fortunes in the world via networks of front companies, foundations, associations, trusts. When it came to offshore companies, the line between legal and illegal was almost imperceptibly thin. Over time, he wrote, I realized that at a certain level, the business was never completely clean. You could never escape corruption. But what he was doing wasn't technically illegal. At least that's what he told himself. In any case, he had a wife and two kids to support. Things were going well. They were happy. And then he met Shikli. If I'd followed my instinct, he wrote, I never would have worked with him. But he did. Atiash helped Shikli get his ad business up and running in Israel. He opened three phone lines for him, putting down his own credit card. Shikli found a home with his family in the port city of Ashdod. But his mistress, a woman named Shirley, had also come to Israel with him from Paris. Atiash rented them an apartment, a block off the beach in Tel Aviv. After that, he didn't see much of Shikli for a while. Until one day, Shikli invited him to the apartment by the beach. He said he had important news to tell him. So he arrived in the apartment, 
And uh, Gilbert and Shirley, his mistress, say, okay, we have something to tell you. The news Shikli had for Atiash was the story I just told you of Madame G. How Shikli had called her, posing as the head of La Poste, and then called again, playing the role of Paul, the secret agent. How she'd filled the bag with cash and waited in the bathroom, handed it over when there was a knock on the stall. The woman she handed it to, it was Shirley, Gilbert's mistress. And they explained to David what's happened, and David said, I can't believe it. In fairness, the French police hadn't believed it either. But for Atiash, it wasn't just that the scam beggared belief. It was that he knew, right then, that he was implicated. At this moment, David understand that, okay, I'm in. When he found out in July, and he said, I'm in, why was he in? What made him Because be Gilbert told him, the apartment is on your name, the line of the phone on your name, the company I send the money, you manage them. The apartment they'd worked from, the phones they'd used, the shell company they'd laundered the money through, all of it traceable to Atiash. If anyone would be left holding the bag, it would be him. Did he think about going to the police then? Yeah, but I think he, he had a decision to take at this moment and he took the bad decision. But it wasn't his idea. It might not have been his idea, but it was his choice, not to go to the police and to join the scam. The money, the thrill, Shikli himself, it was too enticing to walk away. Because this affair is so simple, so simple, so simple, to call someone and to have this money. So it's just something like magic. Now, with Atiash on board, things began to accelerate. He provided all the technical support they needed. Offshore companies to move the money and make it untraceable. Official-looking emails for their correspondence with Marks. Location masking for their phones so they couldn't be traced again. And any little online tasks that required English, which Shikli didn't speak. There was another partner, a Georgian named Israel Elagula. Atiash says that Elagula produced a list of dozens of banks to target in France. And not just banks but specific managers. From where exactly, Atiash didn't know. And Shikli, his job was to persuade. I'm very interested in what their lives were like when they were doing it, in 2005 and 2006. Like, what was a day like? Was Gilbert on the phone all day? And David ah. was on the computer? Like, what was, it, what was the story like from him? Gilbert had to phone many, 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 many times to the director of the bank, David called this La Déballe. La Déballe, it's like a text. And uh, Déballe, uh, you just say it. Mm. Like a script. Like a script, uh-huh. yes. But I think the force of Gilbert was to, to adapt mm. the script of the one you, ha- you, you have on the phone. For Shikli, each one of those scams was an all-consuming, multi-day sleepless blitz. He would pace the apartment by the beach, phone glued to his ear, trying to hold his grip on his marks to keep them isolated and focused on the task at hand. He could make them believe almost anything if they bit. The scam became known as Larnaco President, the president's scam. But in the initial call, Shikli didn't always impersonate a bank's president. It could be a CEO or a director. The perfect mark was someone at just the right corporate level, with enough responsibility to move money around, but not so high up that they'd know the top boss. 
In the second call, he'd pose as some kind of agent from Interpol or the DGSE, France's equivalent of the CIA. They'd be calling about a secret anti-terrorism investigation. Other times, it was money laundering. Instead of having the target deliver a bag of cash, the agent would direct them to transfer the money to offshore accounts, controlled by the French government. In reality, they were controlled by Atiash. Two months after Madame G, Chickley convinced an employee at the bank Credit Commercial to transfer 4.9 million euros to Hong Kong, straight into the gang's accounts. To a banker at Barclays, Chickley was a Secret Service agent named Mr. Vint. At his direction, she sent 5.3 million euros to accounts in Estonia, 5 million from a large French cooperative bank, 2.7 million from a catering company. The gang even pulled the bathroom hand off one more time. They got 972,000 euros in cash from the manager at a bank called LCL, the equivalent of $1.2 million. Shickley also moved on from banks to other companies. He tried American Express, Adidas, even Euro Disney. The group made its biggest score, 11.6 million euros from the French media conglomerate Thompson SA Group. Of course, lots of people just hung up on Shickley. But over 18 months, he would successfully talk employees of at least 20 companies into transferring more than 38 million euros, around $45 million. That at least is one way to calculate it. The true number was impossible to know. Some of those transfers were partially or completely blocked by alert banks. Other times, the duped employees snapped out of it and revoked them just in time. But Shickley would also later claim that many of the places he scammed never filed a complaint at all. It was impossible to verify, but it made sense. The scam was a deeply embarrassing thing to admit. It could be devastating to the company's reputation. At one point, I made a spreadsheet of every target mentioned in the French police files. They had a record of 65 different attempts. In nearly half of them, the mark initiated a transfer. And Atiash was right there, sitting next to Shickley, listening to him work. I think one time he took the phone just to notice if it's real or not. I mean, it was so incredible. Atiash wanted to listen in just to hear that he was really doing it. But he didn't talk to the director of the bank. Mm. It wasn't his uh, personality. Sometimes Shikli improvised tactics on the fly, adding in bizarre, impossible-to-believe flourishes. He told one banker that the agents were watching him, armed with poison arrows. Why arrows? was never explained. Atiash wrote that Shikli was, quote, truly a mystery, an enigma. Where did his courage and his nerve come from? How did he manage to gain the trust of serious people? How did he remain credible, even when he was telling lies that a five-year-old wouldn't have taken seriously? It's part of genius, I think. Yeah, of course, of course. It's a part of genius. No one can say something else. <laughs> Hey, how are you? I'm fine. I'm on the street. Okay. So I guess I'll have to find a, a quiet place. Just a second. Anak Granit is a former chief superintendent in the Israeli police. And at the time of the investigation of Gilbert Shikli, I was the Israel police attaché in Paris. At that moment, the French authorities needed her help. As more and more banks and companies surfaced, each reporting the same con, the police became increasingly desperate to figure out who was behind it. They didn't have much in the way of clues. There was the burner phone in France, 
some bank accounts that had received money from the scam, and the number belonging to Shikli in Israel. Granit's job was to help coordinate between the French and Israeli police. What? Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Are you doing Halloween? Yeah. <laughs> Starting at 6.30, so it's too early. <laughs> I'm taking my kids out later on today. We were talking in October, obviously, last year. I'm sure you dealt with a lot of different cases in this attaché role. How does it compare to other similar cases? Big one. Big one. Shikli is a known name among all the <laughs> police officers in Israel during those years. Mm. He's unique, for sure. <laughs> what, what would you say makes him unique? He's a genius, I think, because the way he convinced women to give him money is unbelievable. I noticed it was all women. He had a way to talk to them, like he found those women who were weak, who had problems, their husband left them, I don't know, who worked in banks or, you know. Mm -hmm. He talked to them in a very gentle way, like he understand their problems. We heard this a lot, actually, that it was all women who Chickley scammed. It wasn't right, though. Part of it just came from which victims the media focused on. The manager of another LaPoste branch in Toulouse, a man, gave away nearly 4 million euros, 10 times Madame G., but you never heard or read about a Monsieur M. It was the kind of thing that happened around Shikli. The story seemed so preposterous. It was impossible to believe what was really going on, that all these professionals were falling for it. So people projected their own ideas onto Shikli to make sense of it all. Anachronit wasn't wrong. As I'd find out, Shikli was a seducer, just maybe not always the kind people thought. With Granit's help, the authorities started surveilling Shikli and the gang in Israel. They came a few times to Israel to investigate him directly. And from time to time, they sent me all sorts of requests they had from the Israel police, like mm. to put a surveillance on him or on his phone or things like that. At the same time, the French police tapped a phone being used in France by Shirley, Gilbert's mistress. The transcripts of the calls are something to behold. He tells her, quote, the next time you threaten me, I'll send people to break your legs. She responds, I can also have your legs cut off, Gilbert. He threatens to send goons to her house. She threatens to burn down his. They weren't getting along. Listening in, it wasn't hard to connect the dots. Shirley said she'd go to the police and turn Shikli in for the scam. Ah, but don't forget you're the one who picked up the money from the bathroom, he responded. Checkmate, I guess. But then in early October of 2005... The French police picked up Shirley in Paris. She came to Paris. Laura Barabee. And she was arrested, and she said everything to the police. At first, Shirley denied knowing Shikli, but quickly reversed herself. She explained everything. I think she was, uh, she was angry. Everything. Like how her lover Gilbert was behind the scam, how he was working with the David Atiash, who was responsible for the offshore end of things. How Gilbert dispatched his brother Simon to Paris, along with Shirley, and directed her to collect the money from Madame G in the bathroom. A few days later, news of the scam finally hit the French papers. Liberation had the scoop, the very story that still sits on my desk, as a yellowed printout. It was the beginning of a bizarre cat-and-mouse game that would continue over the next 12 months. The scams kept going. The French police knew who was behind them. 
but they needed the Israelis to help gather enough evidence to prove it. It could have been quicker. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put it on the French, but maybe it was hard to get the proofs because uh, he managed to hide his uh, footsteps. As for Shikli, sometimes he seemed addicted to the game. Other times, he seemed to want out. After scamming the La Poste branch in Toulouse, he called the victim back and told him to Google Gilbert C. and scam. Later, Shikli would claim that he'd been feeling down that day and he wanted to be stopped. Another time, after their biggest score, he called the police and announced that he was Gilbert Shikli. He would return the millions in exchange for immunity in France. He was coming back immediately, he said. He even announced what flight he'd be on. When the French police greeted the plane, he wasn't on it. What fueled Shikli, Atiash later wrote, was not purely greed, but adrenaline. Quote, he was more of a gambler than a thief. The only difference between him and us is that he is always ready to bet everything, even what he doesn't have. But if this were just a story of one scammer's 18-month hot streak, I wouldn't be telling it to you. My colleagues and I wouldn't have traveled around the world. We wouldn't have chased forgotten suspects in high-tech disguises, hounded some of the most powerful people on the planet, or knocked on doors in darkened hallways. We did, because the scam that Shikli pioneered took over the world. And for a while, it took over mine. When you're in the hands of a great arnaqueur, reality is never quite what it appears. And if you aren't careful, you'll find yourself sitting at a cafe, slowly awakening to the truth of it all, that you've been so amused, you had no idea you were being deceived. Coming up this season on Persona. I started having panic attacks. I could not sleep at night. I would pray so I can sleep a little bit. This was more than anything a mind game. It was a fairy tale, but it was real. <laughs> he said, I'm Gilbert, and he opened a bag, and there was two million euro inside. Do you remember when you first heard that this scam had taken place? Oh, yes. I remember reading it in the newspaper that he was scammed. And I was so happy that somebody scammed this scamster himself. You know what is the nickname of Jivashikli? The Professor. A lot of people try to do uh, what he did. But uh, Gilbert Shikli is a professor. He's the professor. Persona is an original series from Wondery, Pineapple Street Studios, and Amazon Music. The show is written and hosted by me, Evan Ratliff. Our senior producer is Henry Malofsky. Our producer is Sophie Bridges. Our associate producer is Chris Knapp. Production assistance from Natalie Pert. Project management by Courtney Harrell. Joel Lovell is our editor. Additional reporting by Shirley Ascari and David Iverson. Translation by Leela Bajanath. Fact-checking by Adeline Sear and Danya Suleiman. Mixing by Hannes Brown. Our head of sound and engineering is Raj Makija. Original music by Carla Kilstead and Jeremy Flower. Additional percussion by Matthias Bossi. Our artwork is by Kiyomi Morrison. Music licensing by Dan Kanishkui. Production legal provided by Bianca Grimshaw at Granderson Des Rochers. And fair use counsel provided by Katie Ellie Mohammedy Crown at Donaldson Califf. Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky are the executive producers at Pineapple Street. From Amazon Music and Wondery, our producers are Eliza Mills and Stephanie Wachneen. And our managing producer is Candice Manriquez-Rent. The executive producers at Amazon Music and Wondery are Morgan Jones, Marshall Louie, and Aaron O'Flaherty. 